You're listening to the Quince podcast. In some big news on 15 June, the Delhi High Court granted bail to three UAP accused, Devangana Kalita, Natasha Narwal, and Asif Iqbal Tanha in the Delhi riots case. The bench led by Justice Siddharth Madhul and Justice Anoop Jairam Bhambani while granting the bail noted that the state failed to produce evidence to show that the three accused committed a terror offense adding and i quote in its anxiety to suppress dissent in the mind of the state the line between constitutionally granted right to protest and terrorist activity seems to be getting somewhat blurred however what makes this judgment significant is the impact of the observations made by the high court The bench highlighted the differences between protest and acts of terror in its order and that the definition of a terrorist act in the UAPA is wide and somewhat vague. So for today's episode we will go through the charges made against the three accused, how the UAPA law has been used widely to clamp down free speech and dissent and the significance of the Delhi High Court judgment. To navigate through the details of the charge sheet and the legal judgment For today's episode we spoke to the Quint's principal correspondent Ashwarya Ayer and the Quint's legal editor Vakasha Sasdev. You will also hear from Kalpana Kalita who is the mother of Devangana Kalita one of the accused on her views on the judgment. You tuned in to the big story the podcast where we dissect the headline making news for you and I'm your host Emmat The three accused in the case have been behind bars since May 2020 over a year now. Although granted bail, the three accused have been asked to surrender their passports and not to do anything that may interfere with the case or investigation. While Asif Tana is a student of Jamia Millia Islamia University, Natasha Narwal and Devangna Kalita are PhD scholars at Jawaharlal Nehru University. Devangna's mother Kalpana in a conversation with the Quint after the bail judgment came through stated that she is thankful to her lawyers and that she had faith in the judiciary of the country today morning we got the news and the court it was really surprising for us that there is democracy in india that someone can be get bail in uapa within one year because since last two three months we had a feeling that devangana will have to stay in jail for long so we prepared ourselves also and we started preparing devangana also that okay be prepared you may have to stay long there and always we used to write to her in a positive note we never say that this is your dark day this is the bad opportunity in your life always we used to say her that consider it as a golden opportunity in your life golden moments in your life yeah, from the beginning we are saying that we had faith in indian judiciary it is slow and steady mm-hmm. but we had faith that we'll get justice we'll get justice one day proving devangana's innocence and it happens today and we are thankful to our lawyers adhikash yeah. pujari and to sarika mafia and hatim akash narwal natasha's brother in a quote to the quint said that and i quote reading such a strong and powerful bail order rekindled my trust in the judiciary system and it gives me hope that everyone else that is wrongly accused and incarcerated gets justice too end quote but these three individuals are not the only ones who have been charged under the uapa meenun haider safura zagar 
Khalid Saifi and most recently Omar Khalid are among the long list of activists and dissenters who have been accused by the Delhi police for allegedly playing a role in the organization of the Delhi riots in February 2020. But on what basis did they get arrested in the Delhi riots case? The police have claimed that the members of the Pinjra Tor, an organization that Kalita and Narwal are part of, were part of a larger conspiracy to defame PM Modi's government and was orchestrated by individuals who protested against the controversial Citizenship Amendment Act. In the case of Tanha, the police claimed that he is a close associate of Umar Khalid and played an active role in organizing the protest. The police also believed that the day to incite violence was chosen based on the visit of then US President Donald Trump to cause maximum embarrassment to the center. And in a 17,000-page original charge sheet, apart from charges under the UAPA, the police have charged the accused with Section 147 for rioting, Section 148 for rioting armed with a deadly weapon, Section 149 for unlawful assembly, and Section 120B, criminal conspiracy. Later, more charges were added. However, investigative reports done by the Quint on the Delhi riots case show various inconsistencies in the police charges. For example, the Delhi police earlier charge sheet in the case claimed that the conspiracy was hatched in a meeting at Shahin Bagh on 8 January. However, the Quint's investigation revealed that there was no mention of Donald Trump's visit to India at that time. The police then changed the date to 16 February but failed to provide a narrative for this change. Ashwarya Ayer, the Quint's principal correspondent, has been covering the Delhi riots case since it began and she breaks down the several missing pieces in the police charge sheet. First of all, I'd just like to flag to our readers that the Quint has been relentlessly reporting on the Northeast Delhi violence right from when it was unfolding on the ground, um, you know, during the violence in February 2020. Uh, we've also done several exclusive stories on the police probe into the violence, and we continue to report, uh, you know, when the when the case has moved uh, to court hearings, etc. So in our uh, in our reportage, we did a story that highlights eight loopholes. Uh, that can be seen in the main conspiracy charge sheet. The first one is regarding uh, the Delhi police contradicting themselves. Now, this is point number one. The Delhi police in a previous charge sheet of a Delhi riots case said that three people, uh, Khalid Sefi, Tahir Hussain and Umar Khalid, uh, who are all charged with UAPA under FIR 59, the conspiracy FIR, uh, they met at Shaheen Bagh on the 8th of January and they decided that, that, that when Donald Trump visits, we will do a big blast in Delhi. Now, our investigation revealed that there was no information whatsoever about US President Donald Trump's visit to India then. Uh, in a subsequent charge sheet, including in this conspiracy charge sheet, the police has changed the date for when this conspiracy, uh, alleged conspiracy was hatched to 16th, 17th February. They have not addressed this change in narrative. They have not addressed this change. This uh, They have not addressed the loophole that we pointed out. So this is a very, you know, very big uh, issue with the story that the police is trying to weave uh, around the conspiracy being hatched. Point two is regarding, uh, you know, this whole thing about uh, facilitating protests or carrying out a chakka jam. Uh, when that chakka jam has become a conspiracy to carry out violence against non-Muslims or, uh, you know, just Hindus is not a link that the police has been able to substantiate at all. This was These were anti-CA protests. Now, when these anti-CA protests or this Chakka Jam, uh, which rejected the uh, Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, when that has converted into violence against Hindus, is something that the police has not been able to substantiate 
in their main chart sheet. The third issue is regarding, you know, these WhatsApp groups that are being examined by the Delhi police, which form the bulk of their investigation. Um, this is that here in these WhatsApp chats that we have also extensively reported about, you can see a lot of discussion about Chakka Jam. But in none of the groups, none of the groups is violence being incited or planned or even condoned. So again, uh, that link between, you know, just a Chakka Jam meaning violence or terrorism uh, that link was severely missing in the in the in the chart sheet, which is which is eventually seen in the Delhi High Court order, which has granted bail uh, to the three UAP accused in the case. The fourth point is regarding um, you know the chart sheet sort of overlooking the differences within the anti-CA protesters. For example, Shirjil Imam had called off the Shaheen Bagh protests uh, a few weeks into it, you know, much earlier, but the protests continued till March, uh, you know, till lockdown happened and the riots happened. So. Even though the police tries to argue that Shajil Imam had control uh, on the Shaheen Bagh protesters even after that, um, it is very, very true that on the ground, Shaheen Bagh protesters had actively distanced themselves and, you know, vocally distanced themselves from uh, Shajil Imam. So the police investigation does not reveal that understanding of the, the way anti-CA protests were panning out on the ground. The fifth uh, issue is regarding the various contradictions between these WhatsApp groups as well. So there were lots of people um, on these WhatsApp groups which said that, you know, which were who were against the idea of a blockade in Northeast Delhi. But instead of appreciating the context behind the debate and understanding where these people were coming from, it seems like the police is, you know, just, just picking on a few messages uh, to tag people with the role of being a conspirator, um, which is also extremely problematic because... Obviously, in trial, you have to have evidence, right? You can't just make allegations based on WhatsApp messages. And of course, all this sounds very sensational. But in the trial, it has to hold true as evidence. So yeah, uh, they've, they've, they've not uh, understood the context and uh, used some lines that you know, people said here and there to, um, to scare them or to make, them, uh, to make it seem like they are the ones who are the conspirators of the violence, which is, again, very, very problematic. Point number six would be, uh, you know, there were also very genuine debates on whether the protest should be secular in nature or Muslim-centric in nature. But the police has this tone in their chat sheet, you know, they, they've written in a way that all these efforts to make the protest seem secular, uh, or that Hindus were also participating in the protests, uh, were an effort to deceive uh, the people, which is again, we are not clear why, why some parts of the WhatsApp groups that, you know, that the police wants to pick on, uh, are being believed at face value. However, others where the, the talk of a secular protest, the need for secular protest, the actual involvement of uh, non-Muslims in protests is not uh, being, um, you know, taken at face value. Rather, it's being dismissed as an effort at deception. What explains that? We don't know. Point number seven is regarding, you know, the difference between the violence that occurred in Delhi in December 2019, the sporadic violence uh, with anti-CA protesters, um, uh, around anti-CA protests, rather, and uh, in February 2020, when we saw full-blown communal violence are unaddressed by the police. For example, in December, the clashes were primarily between the police and the anti-CA protesters. However, in February, uh, there was an active involvement of Hindutva groups, of pro-CA groups, of gunmen going around. This involvement of these pro-Hindutva groups or pro-CA groups has completely been ignored by the police. Also, point eight, which is which is um, another aspect of the difference between uh, the violence that occurred in December 2019 and February 2020, is that the Delhi elections happened then, right? So it's not just sporadic incidents of violence anymore, but also 
various BJP leaders like Anurag Thakur and Kapil Mishra and Pravesh Varma, um, you know, uh, people, you know, these people making these very, very problematic comments, including Amit Shah in Delhi, uh, which sort of led to an increase in tension uh, around the Delhi riots. And there's also, you know, the Ragini Tiwari's appearance in the Northeast Delhi violence on 23rd February, you know, right before it became full blown. So considering that over two thirds of those killed in the Northeast Delhi violence were Muslims, uh, this other strand of pro-CA protesters can't be left unaddressed. And that's what it seems like till now, that the police is not investigating what happened on that side, which is a very, very big loophole in their investigation. While discussing the merits on which Narwal and Kalita were granted bail, the Delhi High Court stated that the allegations relating to inflammatory speeches, chakka jam, stockpile of various articles and other allegations are, and I quote, at first evidence that the appellant participated in organizing protest, but we can discern no specific or particularized allegation, much less any material to bear out the allegation that the appellant incited violence, end quote. The Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, which the three have been charged with, has long been criticized to be a draconian act. It was introduced in 1967 as a legislation to set out reasonable restrictions on fundamental freedoms such as freedom of speech, right to assemble peacefully and right to form associations. These restrictions were meant to safeguard India's integrity and sovereignty. Over the years, a number of amendments to the UAPA make it stricter when it comes to the rights of accused and include more terror-related offences, making it the weapon of choice to use against dissidents due to its ambiguous and draconian provisions. Just as an example to demonstrate how ambiguous some provisions are, under the UAPA, causing disaffection against India is an unlawful activity. However, no definition of disaffection in the law has been provided and its interpretation is left to the authorities. It also has very wide definitions of terms like unlawful activities, terrorist acts, and membership with unlawful associations, terror groups, and organizations. The Delhi High Court also pointed out these wide definitions, stating that the definition of terrorist in Section 15 of the UAPA is, is wide and somewhat vague. Pertinently, the court highlighted that protest and other acts which cause law and order issues will not fall under the essential character of terrorism, as they are not acts against the defense of India. Wakasha Sasdev, the Quint's legal editor, breaks down further on the ambiguity of the provisions of the UAPA and how they have been used in the past to arrest activists and lawyers. So the UAPA is sort of the latest example of a tool for the Indian state to defend its security even at the risk of damaging personal liberty of others. And I mean, you may argue that there is a requirement for this or not, but India has a long history of misusing these laws. You will have heard of things like TADA and POTA. These were the most recent ones before the UAPA. And um, the, you know, the, the, the way TADA was misused, particularly in places like Punjab, uh, where you have cases to this day, you'll hear about how that law was used to take people into custody, uh, to you know, to lock them up for years without trial, without charge. Uh, the POTA misuse was so rampant that it, even the Congress actually made repeal of POTA one of its manifesto promises uh, for the 2004 elections, which is why the UPA won government actually uh, re repealed POTA soon after sort of coming into power. Now, when it did that, it um, picked up a bunch of these provisions which used to exist in the Prevention of Terrorism Act or POTA and they put them into the UAPA because the UAPA is an old standing legislation. It's been around since 1967. But initially what it punished was what were called unlawful activities. That itself was very vaguely defined. Essentially the idea was it was supposed to be dealing with serious risks of secessionism, 
and uh, you know sort of uh, threats to threat threats to sort of public order which would which were part of that kind of, kind of thing i mean it's still very very vaguely defined under the act but uh, if you look at the statement of objects and reasons it was meant to be how do you set out reasonable restrictions on the right to freedom of speech and the right to freedom of association in the context of those kind of movements um but again from the start itself it's a legislation which has suffered from tremendous vagueness and now when you have from 2004 onwards and then 2008 in particular you have these two key amendments which bring in terrorism offences into the ambit of the UAPA and they are very very weirdly drafted i mean the first part is the fact that there's no clear definition of terrorism under the UAPA because it is our primary legislation for dealing with terrorism offences and yet you don't really have a definition of terrorism within it now while that's somewhat understandable because you know even the un has spent years and years trying to come up with a definition of terrorism which it can't quite do because terrorism is it's a shifting constantly changing kind of idea i mean like it's the concepts and uh, and the precepts behind it i mean and the ways it, it, it terrorism works across the world keep changing you know now we have things like say even uh, cyber cyber attacks can become terrorism if they used in a particular way um but the thing is there are there should be some idea that okay this is something there's a threshold that something is just a basic set of criminal acts which may involve violence may involve threatening people and then it rises to the level of terrorism when it meets that threshold uh, unfortunately the legislation doesn't do that at all um it was basically just these very rote terms on terrorism and what is interesting is that the idea behind this was not to necessarily say that oh i'm going to construe certain sets of acts as terrorism but largely the way the uapa was used initially was uh, even after these amendments in 2004 2008 was about dealing with banned organizations so if you had designated uh, the, the jem as a uh, terrorist organization now anyone who belongs to that gets uh, is, is, is can be charged with an offense under the uapa you don't have to specifically show that they had necessarily maybe uh, you know gone and taken a gun and run out into the streets but the uh, the big and the, the reason you do this is because it is very difficult to define terrorism and over the years uh, even under the ua the upa 1 and 2 regime the uapa was definitely misused in particular against people who were accused of having maoist sympathies and you know I, you see the same kind of activists and all who've been arrested now many of them had been accused of offenses booked under it some had spent some time in jail uh even under those regimes as well you the uapa uh, provisions were misused even sometimes against protesters at tutikodi and uh, other places uh you know around the country wherever it was felt like but there was a bit of an understanding that you only picked it up in the in connection with those kind of things right where you could so where you were trying to kind of put it in the context of some bigger terrorism uh sort of organization and paradigm whereas now the way the uap has been used in recent years and you can see that in the way the number of uap cases has skyrocketed during uh you know during the bjp's time is that it's used it's it's sort of being tacked on to uh, any sort of offense where they, where the government isn't happy with what's going on and the, and there's a there's one very simple reason for that and that's because it makes it really hard to get bail there's no real connection uh between the sort of con- concept of terrorism which the uapa is supposed to address or even the sort of secessionism and worries which the, the concept of unlawful activities under the uapa was supposed to suggest it's now just a way they they just will say that oh the uapa is involved and they'll specifically say the terrorism offenses under the uapa are involved because that makes it tough to get bail section 43d uh 5 of the uapa 
says that when someone's been accused of a terrorism offense, specifically terrorism offense, not unlawful activity, but a terrorism offense under the uh, uh, under the UAPA, the court cannot grant them bail unless they find uh, that the case presented by the police, by the investigating authority through its case diary and other reports, is not prima facie true. Now, this is a very key thing because the way the government has tended to argue it is that, you know what, we've got uh, a paper which says that this person has committed a terrorism offense. We have someone who says they did, so that's enough. You know, the court has to uh, immediately, uh, so now the court can't grant them bail because there's prima facie cases there. Sort of just going back to why this, where this plays in into sort of the general vagueness of the UAPA is that it's, there's so much subjectivity which is being played around with by uh, this legislation that it gives the police and the investigating authorities and the government the power to kind of use that against people, which is very, very dangerous in a legislation because if you're going to give so much sort of ambiguity in this, um, that is something which the state is always going to have the power to misuse. Going back to the court's order, some stern criticism have come from the division benches. The court noted that the state has blurred the lines between constitutionally guaranteed right to protest and terrorist activity, and that if this gains further traction, democracy would be in peril. According to Vakasha, the High Court has now set a new path on how evidence is scrutinized in criminal cases, and has followed in line with what the Supreme Court also observed in the Arnav Goswami case in 2020. So, uh... What's fascinating with what the uh, High Court has done here in terms of looking at what's, you know, on offer from the prosecution, uh, essentially, uh, because they've had to look at the charge sheet. It's not just, you know, even a case study. You know, now, now a charge sheet has been filed by the Delhi police against these accused. So there's a lot of material from the government available to them. Now, there are many courts and the trial court basically said, oh, look, you know, there's all of this is here. The police have said this. We can't grant these guys bail. That's what the special court which was looking at this said back in January and unfortunately that has tended to be the approach taken by lower courts and even high courts and the Supreme Court a lot of times over the last few years when it comes to UAP cases and, and, and it's it's sort of symptomatic of a broader approach to uh, liberty and bail cases and, and any sort of kind of criminal cases where uh, the, 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 the whole norm of bail being the norm and being the rule and jail being the exception is being forgotten because there's an idea that okay look once the prosecution has put forward some grounds for someone to be detained that's good enough right we don't we can't stray into deciding whether or not those are good grounds or bad grounds or valid grounds or sound grounds so that's a, a particular it's a sort of a broader problem we've been seeing um, across criminal justice in India but what's very fascinating about this is that this sort of follows in line with something which the Supreme Court did last year, even with the Arnab Goswami case, where they said, you know what, there can't be this sort of mechanical acceptance of this. There has to be an actual scrutiny of, uh, you know, of, of, of what the police are saying and the allegations they're making. And that's what really comes to the fore here. Uh, the, the, the court hasn't said, OK, look, oh, you know what, your evidence was technically, the evidence you're producing here against Natasha Narwal and Devangana and Asif is um, technically inadmissible and therefore the person should get bail. No, they're saying you've not substantiated your allegations at all. In fact, forget substantiating allegations. You've not even made specific allegations against these people that they did X, Y, Z thing, which amounts to a terrorism offense. I mean, that's, that's sort of a slight distinction. They've not said that these people have not done anything which may be a crime. Um, that is not something which the court has said. That they've said is up to, you know, it's, it's up to the court to look at it still with the evidence and look for trial. But 
the question is, what exactly is the accusation against these people? Is it actually about a terrorism offence? Because it's only when, as we pointed out earlier, that there is a terrorism offence at play, that Section 43D5 of the UAPA will be used to deny them bail. If 43D5 doesn't apply, then you do not... Uh, then you're just sort of looking at the regular grounds for granting someone bail. Are they a flight risk? Are they going to run away? Are they going to tamper with the witnesses or the evidence? Which, particularly in cases where you've filed the charge sheet, is kind of impossible because all the evidence is already there, right? And thirdly, you know, whether they're, uh, you know, are they going to actually be there for the trial? So these are, these are the grounds on which you would deny bail in, on a regular case. Uh, with UAPA, because they say, oh, 43D5, that becomes a problem in the way. But here the court said, look, you've given us nothing to indicate these people committed a terrorism offence. You're saying Devangana and Natasha organised protests. Okay, sure. You're saying, oh, there was a conspiracy for the protest to become something more. But you've not attributed anything to them that they were the ones who said we want to do this or they or they or that they took specific steps to convert peaceful protests into uh, violent actions. And then the court has some very, very, very powerful uh, discussions on the right to protest and how that cannot be designated a terrorism offence just on the face of it. Essentially, what the Delhi police have tried to say is that the moment people are trying to uh, organise protests, if they're serious protests, if they're going to involve chakka jams, uh, you know, that's grounds to say that we can invoke anti-terror legislation against them. And the court has come down very, very strongly on that. They've said that you cannot just make this automatic, and you know, equation of the two things you have to very simply look at what the um look at 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 at, at, at what the police are saying you know, that this person has done and if there are no specific allegations uh which can be tied to actual a serious offense of violence of harm of terror specific allegations against these people you can't just sort of wrap them up in this vague idea of a conspiracy to create terror and that is a very, very strong comment, not just for the Delhi riots case, but it is, it's particularly powerful for the Delhi riots case because the entire Delhi police case is based on just these inferences and conjectures which they've kind of just made up. Uh, and they said that on the basis of this, we think there's a conspiracy. You know, there's, there's no actual evidence of that. Uh, they've got these, they, there's, they, they basically got sort of protected witnesses to say this, statements which aren't even uh, before a magistrate. They've got these random protected witnesses to keep saying certain things, which they then infer and utilize to stretch to say that, oh, therefore, there's a broader conspiracy. But there's no actual evidence against any of these people. As, as Devangana and Natasha, for instance, show that, you know, you're saying that they were involved with the violence which took place in these two places. They were never there. The CDR records will show you that. Video will show you we were not there. So, you know, there is nothing to, to tie us to that violence at all and there's no evidence of a speech you've got no details of a speech which we gave which urged people to commit violence you've got none of that um for us if it's even worse i mean here the, the, the broader idea behind these guys was that they were actually very heavily involved with these protests was asked if the only direct uh, sort of action he's supposed to have taken according to the charge sheet is that he took a sim card from someone and then he gave it to someone else and that's it so, you know, I mean, the, 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 what the court has said is that, look, you've got 19,000 pages, you've talked about all of this, but where are the direct specific allegations against these people? There's nothing. And you can't then just say that you can't keep making inferences and use that to, to build up a, a, a case of conspiracy for terrorism. At most, you can say maybe, they, maybe this was a protest which got out of hand, maybe there are sort of violations of the law which you can point to which happen when that can happen, but that's not the same as a terrorism offense. So... Uh, what the court's done here very importantly is that it's clamped down on this idea of trying to just utilize a law like um, 
the UAPA to get its stringent bail provisions involved to stop people from being able to get bail. The idea is that what the court said is that if you're going to make a claim of terrorism, it needs to be an actually serious claim. Otherwise, you're actually, um, the, the, it's the police who are actually kind of almost cheapening and, and diluting the very concept of this, which is actually worse in the long run. So a very, very important judgment in terms of protecting uh, free speech. They are making sure that the court is saying that we are not going to just accept claims that protests are equal to terrorism. And that's a, it's, it's an approach in more than even just you know the sort of specifics of this case, it's about the approach the court has taken, which is saying that you know this is what the trial court should have done. Uh, this is what trial courts need to be doing across the country, not just here. Other high courts can now look to this and say, look, you know what, uh, this is this is the kind of bold, you know, sort of strong approach to questioning the narrative of the state that we also need to take. Uh, I mean, one other very specifically useful thing is that you know uh, sometimes when sanction is granted for certain offences, right? So UAP offences, even sedition, they require sanction by a government. Trial courts will look at it and say, oh my God, you know, sanction was granted by an independent investigative agency. So you know what? We should therefore accept the allegations made by the police here. The court has specifically said that is absolutely wrong and mustn't happen. So you know, this is a judgment which the approach in particular used here, even. Uh, you know, not the specific findings are going to be so useful if courts actually really want to discover their spine. I mean, the big worry is, is the Supreme Court going to stay this? The Delhi police is uh, approaching the Supreme Court on appeal against this, saying that the observations on bail are incorrect. I mean, on law, it's very difficult to see because there's a very, very detailed and good analysis where they've actually even gone over the Watali judgment, which, uh, you know, the, 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 the government tends to use very strongly in its favor and point out that, you know, look, even there, even applying that standard, you can't you, it still doesn't sort of give you carte blanche to just kind of mess around with people and, 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 and impute uh, charges against them which don't make sense. So uh, the approach being suggested here, very, very useful, very powerful, and something which I think we should be very, uh, uh, which, which is going to be a very, very important one for things to come. In a late development on 15 June, the Delhi police has stated that it is going to challenge the bail order granted to the three UAP accused. The Delhi High Court judgment sets a precedent for courts to ensure that evidence provided against accused is strictly and narrowly scrutinized, so that laws like the UAPA don't block democratic rights of citizens. If you like listening to this episode, please subscribe to The Big Story for episodic updates. We're available on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, GeoSavan, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quint website and for any feedback, please shoot an email to podcast at thequint.com. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quint website and check out our other podcasts. 